0: Wonderful words from 1 Corinthians 13, sung wonderfully. Better than a Bible reading, isn't it? (laughs) When you've got someone who can sing like that. And that's what I'm going to speak today about. We're going to speak about the title of my sermon is Love the More Excellent Way, based on 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You see, this was the problem with the church of Corinth. The way that they lived was such a poor way to live and they didn't even know it. Christian communities of all sizes from families to cell groups to congregations must always resist bearing any resemblance to that of the Corinthians because they were super spiritual, self-centered, ambitious, competitive, proud, factional, self-righteous, power-hungry and fleshly. And yet displaying all these traits, they still believed that they were spiritual. I want to show you that what we heard in the song today, based on 1 Corinthians 13, is all that matters to God is that we travel by the way of love. But if we're going to travel by the way of love, I want to show you this morning, it's going to take faith, it's going to take hope, and it's also going to need a strong prayer life. Well, when you look at the letter of Corinthians and we get to this place that we heard Matt sing about the excellence of love, we find that this chapter 13, 1 Corinthians 13, is all the more powerful because of the situation of the Corinthian church that Paul was ministering into. You know, 1 Corinthians 13 is a very popular passage. Has anybody ever heard it read in a wedding? You often see it if you go to the bookshop, we have a little bookshop downstairs, you'll find that you can get bookmarks with 1 Corinthians 13 on and little plaques for the wall. It's a a very well-known Christian passage, but unfortunately, although it is well-known, it is one of the least understood passages in the Bible amongst Christians in the Western world. It is also one of the least practiced chapters of the Bible in the Western world. I think it becomes too familiar. It's a nice sound, it's good sounding words, words about peace and words about kindness and it all seems very nice and the English like it because it seems so polite. But these words are powerful. These words are what will define whether we please God in our lives or we don't please God in our lives. So before we go into a little bit more in depth 1 Corinthians 13, let's have a look at the background to the type of church and Christian community and communities that Paul felt he had to write 1 Corinthians 13, the chapter on love too. Well, the Corinthians were trying to do church and to, to do life But they were doing it in all the wrong ways. If we read through 1 Corinthians, we'll see the type of terrible situations and and circumstances that they were were dealing with and, and, and the sort of way that they were handling problems in the church were horrific. And I just want to quickly highlight you through Corinthians, you get a feel about why Paul had to speak these words of love to them. Right at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, we find that Paul is speaking into a church that are divided, quarreling. They're fighting over which preacher was the best uh, and, and who you followed and who I followed and arguing about this. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, But that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, or were you baptized into the name of Paul? So here we we find that that really what was happening is that that they were all discussing who was the greatest ministry, who was the greatest preacher, who had the greatest insight to the Bible and they were forming clusters and groups around specific figures instead of forming groups around Jesus through which these figures uh, were trying to minister and so there was arguments and fighting. We also find that the Corinthians were dealing with the day-to-day situations of life in a carnal manner, manner, or a worldly manner, or a fleshly manner, rather than the manner of love. So, if we go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, he speaks of them as being natural men. In other words, people that were living their life uh, without recourse to the kingdom of God principles or the Holy Spirit. They are acting as if they were non-Christians and never met God. 1 Corinthians 2.14, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as men of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men?" For when one says, I am of Paul, another I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? Now this is interesting because Paul is saying to the Corinthian church, the way that you're living, the way that you're acting towards one another, is not godly and it's immature. Do you remember when Matt was singing from 1 Corinthians 13, there was a, a section there about being a child and growing up it's from 1 corinthians chapter 13 11 and it reads when i was a child i used to speak like a child think like a child reason like a child but when i became a man i did away with childish things and now here in this section in 1 corinthians chapter 2 he's saying i'm treating you like babies you know, Jesus tells us to be like children. He says, if, if you want to be, understand the kingdom of God, you should approach it as a child. Well, what does he mean by that? He means the simplicity tr- uh, and trust of a child to its parents, we should have to our Father in heaven. So there's a good way of illustrating the Christian life as being childlike. But here, Paul is using the, the, the more negative view of being, a, being childish, immature, infantile, failing to grow up and just acting like one might call a big baby. And he's saying, you know, you Corinthians, the way you're living your life, you're like big babies. I wanted to give you some strong meat, which is how to live the life of love. But you're nowhere near ready. You're not even thinking about living the life of love. So I'm like giving you milk and you can barely contain that. He was calling on the Corinthians to grow up, spiritually speaking. He was calling on the Corinthians to mature and to begin to digest the meat of following God, which is the whole passage of love that that we have seen. You know, the Corinthians were in what we might psychologically call an arrested state of development. I don't know if you know of that phrase, an arrested state of development. This is often a psychological uh, term used for, say, somebody that is growing up physically but not psychologically or mentally. So maybe for some medical reason, there may be somebody who's 30 years old, but they have a mind and understanding of, say, a six-year-old. We would say that there, there was a, uh, a, a, a development that was arrested there because they hadn't grown up. Well, there is a spiritual Arrestment of development that people can have, where they go so far in Christ, but then they never grow into the maturity that God is calling them into. They just stay where they are. And the reason is, is that they don't understand that Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 13 that there is a better way to live your life than living it like the world that a better way, or the excellent way, is to pursue love. And the crazy thing was, is that Paul was saying this to the Corinthians, saying, if you want to mature, you have to mature in love, it's the only way. But the Corinthians thought that they were mature. The Corinthians lacked no spiritual gift. The spiritual gifts were powerfully among them. 1 Corinthians 13 comes after 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul is describing the gifts to them. And then 1 Corinthians 14 speaks about the gifts of the Spirit, prophecy and healing and faith and the miraculous and speaking in in tongues. These types of, of manifestations of gifting were prevalent amongst the Corinthians. In fact, they felt... That the more powerful the spiritual gift that you had, the more mature you were as a Christian. And so when we read 1 Corinthians 13... Uh, Paul says things about such that if you have the, the, the tongues of angels or if you have faith to remove all mountains or knowledge to explain all mysteries or charitable gifts to feed half the world or if you're prepared to go to the stake and die for what you believe but have not love, then you're nothing to God. This is one of the common mistakes in Christianity today. That the greater gift you have, the greater your maturity in Christ. But it is possible to have a world-class gifted preacher or prophet or prophetess behind the pulpit with a world-class gift world-class that can dazzle the crowds, bless the crowds, bring healings and miracles, world-class gifting, but it's possible for that preacher to step off the platform into the back room and act like a big baby. We know it's possible because it was happening here in Corinthians. Not just spiritual gifts, but whatever gift God has given to you. You may have a great gift in business, or a great gift in music, or a great gift in the media, or whatever gift God has for you. God is going to use that gift for his blessing. But the danger is, is that you looked at your giftedness, and somehow that giftedness defines yourself to you and perhaps to others. People see their, get your gift, and they hail you for your gift. You think that because you're gifted then therefore you're not only pleasing others, but pleasing God. But as we see, to God, your gifting means nothing to him. What he's looking for is your character and the way that you treat one another. But the Corinthians, they thought that they were kings. That They thought that they'd reached the pinnacle of Christian maturity and there was nothing that Paul needed to teach them. After all, look at the power, look at the healings, look at the miracles. Look at the manifestations of God. They thought they were kings. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 8. Paul is contrasting himself with these kings of the Christian faith. That's what the Christians thought that they were. He says, 1 Corinthians 4, 8. You are already filled. You have already become rich. You've become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we could reign with you. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all, as men condemned to death, because we've become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honour. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and poorly clothed and roughly treated and are homeless, and we toil working with our own hands. When we're reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure. When we're slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. And so here they are again, factions, disagreements, super-spirituality, having a high opinion of themselves. We could go into chapter 5 where we see that there's immorality also taking place in the Corinthians. In chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Does any of you, when he has a cause against his neighbour, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? There was so much fighting and arguing going on in the Corinthian church that a lot of the problems in the church was finding itself out in the law courts. Why? Because no one would give an inch to the other. Why? Because everyone was self-righteous in their own eyes. The problem with being a religious people and not following the path of love is that religious people without love have a tendency to self-righteousness, and they tend to think that God is on their side and their side only. So, during a disagreement, uh, they will not back down because God is on my side. God will justify me. God will be my witness. Well, he doesn't need to, does he? Because you're about to take the person to court. And so, if they are taking one another to court, what else is going on in the church in this type of disagreement and anger? They were involved in gluttony and prostitution and were likened in chapter 10 to the Moses generation, a generation of unbelief that spent their whole time murmuring uh, and arguing in the wilderness for 40 years when they should have been in the promised land drinking milk and honey and obtaining the promises that God had destined for their lives. They were vying for preeminence as we come back to chapter 12 into verse 13 and in chapter 12 Paul has to say hey why are you arguing over who's the best and most important in the kingdom of God and who's got the gift and who's got the ears of the crowd and who's got the the plan from God that will take a nation and everybody has to follow you and 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 you're the head and not the tail and all this kind of rubbish and he's saying look at a body you're the body of Christ look at a body would the eye say to the foot, "I'm the eye, I don't need you." Or would the the hand say to the leg, "I don't need you." So there was this sense where there was no recognition of other people's service in the kingdom unless they were they were serving their own their own selfishness. Well, that's just a slight, Uh, uh, journey through the situation that was in Corinthians. And if you find some time to read the book yourself, you'll see it's far worse and far more deeply ingrained than just those highlights that I I gave to you. But now we come back to 1 Corinthians 13 again. And uh, I'm going to read it to you, but I won't read it from the New American Standard. And uh, I'm going to read it to you from the Message Translation. You can Google this and read it later if you like. Now, the Message Translation, that is a translation of the Bible that, that tries to bring it into really, really modern language. Because I said, one of the dangers with 1 Corinthians 13 is, is we're all so familiar with it and we don't realize that it's meant to be central to the way that we live. So I'm going to read this. It won't come up on the screen, but... It's there for you just to hear, really. 1 Corinthians 13, message style. If I speak with eloquence and angelic ecstasy, but don't love, I'm nothing but the creaking of a rusty great gate. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all his mysteries and making everything as plain as day. And if I have faith that says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I don't love. I'm nothing. If I give everything I own to the poor and even go to the stake to be burnt as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, what I believe, and what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. Love never gives up. Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut. Love doesn't have a swelled head. Doesn't force itself on others. Isn't always me first. Doesn't fly off the handle. Doesn't keep score of the sins of others. Doesn't revel when others grovel. Takes pleasure in the flowering of truth. Puts up with anything. Trusts God always. Always looks for the best. Never looks back. But keeps going to the end. Love never dies. Inspired speech will be over someday. Praying in tongues will end. Understanding will reach its limit. We only know a portion of the truth, and what we say about God is always incomplete. But when the complete arrives, our incompletes will be cancelled. When I was an infant at my mother's breast, I gurgled and cooed like any infant. When I grew up, I left those infant ways for good. We don't see things clearly, We're squinting in the fog, peering through a mist. But it won't be long before the weather clears and the sun shines bright. We'll see it all then. See it all as clearly as God sees us, knowing him directly just as he knows us. But for right now, until that completeness, we have three things to do to lead us towards that consummation. Trust steadily in God. Hope unswervingly, love extravagantly, and the best of these three is love. You see, Paul is mapping out a more excellent way. He says to the Corinthians, both before this and afterwards, pursue the gifts, seek earnestly the gifts. There's nothing wrong with the gifts, they're there to be a blessing to others. But above all these things, Pursue the gifts and use what God has given you, but you focus on love. And then in this passage, he explains what love isn't. Love isn't the Corinthians. And he expresses that. I'm back now to 1 Corinthians 13, the new American standard. He says things like love is not jealous. The Corinthians were jealous. Love does not brag they were boasting. Love is not arrogant. The Corinthians were arrogant. Doesn't act unbecomingly. That's what they were doing. Does not seek its own. That's what the Corinthians were doing. Is not provoked. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. They were doing that again and again. He says, love is not you currently. But love Love believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, never fails, is patient, is kind. You see, as I said earlier, it is possible for God to use the most spiritually gifted of individuals, but without love, they're considered by him, the one that's being used, as worthless and unspiritual. We've got to get this deep in our mindsets and hearts. That God can use someone and count that person that's being used as worthless in the kingdom of God. You say, how can God count anybody as worthless? Well, at the one level, he doesn't. He counts us so worthwhile that he died for each one of us. Do you understand? And the reason that we're going to heaven is not because of anything of us, but because of everything of him. Not because we've done anything, but because he did everything on the cross when he died in our place. That shows how much he loves us. But I'm talking about after that. How we live our life. Earlier on in 1 Corinthians 3, we get this passage that nobody can be saved except on the foundation stone of Christ. But on top of that, it talks about how we're building in our lives. And some people are building lives that that God greatly appreciates and values. And it's like building a house in 1 Corinthians 3. It says with precious jewels and stones, it's valuable to God. And at the end, when that person goes to heaven, then they will get a reward because the way they lived their life was so valuable to God, it wasn't worthless what they did for him. But then there's another picture who's also saved and remains on the foundation of salvation that is Christ's work alone. But these people, these live their lives like building with straw and rotten wood. And then when they go to heaven... When God tests what they did for him and how they did, the whole thing goes up in flames and is burnt, yet they themselves are saved but through fire. Like a man or a woman whose house is on fire and everything gets burnt up, all their possessions, but they just manage to get out in their underwear. They've brought nothing with them. This is the context of what we're talking about. So it's possible for a spiritual gift to be used to bless people because the spiritual gift comes from who? The Holy Spirit. And then that person thinks that somehow they're the man of power for the hour. Or, or that God is pleased with them. But actually God is saying, no, your life's valueless. Because I look to see the way you treat your wife, your husband, your kids behind the scenes. I look the way that, to see the way you treat the waiter who doesn't bring your food quite as you you wanted it. I wait to see what you're like behind the desk in the office when you're not exercising your gift, whatever that might be. You see, the Corinthians were Pharisees, and they were putting it on on the outside instead of dealing with the issues on the inside. Now, we see this passage in 1 Corinthians 13, but this is a theme throughout the New Testament Let me ask you, what was Jesus' new commandment to his disciples? His one commandment, his new commandment. This commandment I give to you, that you should love one another. The problem is, when you talk about, well, what is love? People get all confused. What is love? You can ask a hundred people and get a hundred different opinions. Some people think that love is an emotion, a romantic emotion. Other people think that love is generally being nice and polite. But the love we're talking about isn't a natural affinity or a natural politeness, but the love that we're talking about can only come from God. In fact, it's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. So 1 Corinthians 13 is also expressed in passages like Galatians 5:22, The fruit of the Spirit, it says... The fruit of the Spirit is love, peace, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The fruit of the Spirit is love. 1 Corinthians 13 is love. And then you say, well, what is love? What does love look like? It looks like joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. They're descriptions of what it is to show love to be self-controlled. Now, these words we don't have time to go in today, but often they are misunderstood and misrepresented. So, for example, the word patience is an extremely strong word. In the Greek, it's makrothumia. It means long-temperedness. It means the uh, the ability to keep on keeping on even when it's difficult, never giving up. It's supernatural... Uh, Fruit of never giving up on someone, never giving up on God, never giving up on following Jesus. I don't know about you, I feel like giving up all the time. But if you feel like giving up, what is God doing? He's working in you the fruit of not giving up. So that you can get stronger and stronger. The Roman army was said to have this, patience, macrothumia, because there was a time when they would never surrender. They might get beaten in battle, but they would never surrender. They had patience. Another one I'll just pick out of the blue to show you is gentleness. Often when we think of gentleness, you might think of someone that is sort of like very quiet and easily disturbed. And if you say boo, they jump because they're so gentle. But this gentleness, it's not talking about that kind of thing at all. But this gentleness is talking about... I've forgotten. (laughs) I say power under control. Power under control. It was especially a description of generals of armies and rulers who had great power over people, but they didn't abuse that power. They used that power and authority for the good of the people they ruled, for the good. They used it responsibly. So that's a lot different, isn't it, than than thinking about, about, you know, uh, something humility and being sort of somehow weak you see love never fails it's not weakness but it's actually strength I could also take you to the greatest sermon on love that was ever preached and it's love from the beginning and it's love to the end I refer you to the Sermon on the Mount in uh, Matthew chapter 5 through 7 and the Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitudes doesn't it And those Beatitudes are another way of expressing 1 Corinthians 13 love. Those Beatitudes are another way of speaking about the fruit of the Spirit. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's a picture of somebody walking in love. Finally, I could, well, not finally, I could take you to many of the passages, but finally today I can take you to the wisdom that comes from above that we find in James 3.17. James 3.17, the wisdom from above is first pure, peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James 3.17. These are just a few passages I'm putting together like pieces of a jigsaw puzzle to tell you that what love is and how it's expressed can be found in many passages. And love is powerful. It's not weak. Love is a picture of Jesus And Jesus loved, yet there were times, wasn't there, when when Jesus was very confrontational. You see, love doesn't say that you just don't deal with the issues of life. Keep running away from them. Keep avoiding them. Don't meet life's issues or difficulties or difficult peoples, if I can put it that way, head on. But just capitulate because you're so loving. No, on the contrary, love deals with situations. But when it deals with situations, it checks itself to make sure it is dealing with a difficult situation with the right love attitude. You hear what I'm saying? That's it. People without love have to deal with the same situations that people with love deal with. The Corinthian way, the way of the flesh and the works of the flesh, or what James would call wisdom from below, sensual, uh, 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 demonic, they're dealing with the same things. But it's how you deal with it that matters to God. Now, somebody used to, uh, somebody would um, quote Machiavelli, who said, the ends justify the means. In other words, okay, you broke a few laws, you cracked a few heads, you were a bit nasty, but... You got the result, and in the end, isn't it the result that matters? God is the opposite to Machiavelli. The ends do not justify the means, but the means are everything to God. Whether you succeed in a situation or fail in a situation is not what God is looking at primarily. He's looking at how you dealt with the situation to determine whether it was successful or not. The way of love is such a totally different way of dealing with situations and dealing with people. It turns everything on its head. You need God to walk in love. That's why uh, when it ends, it talks about faith, hope, and love. You need to trust God. You need to believe God, that God is in control of your life ultimately and not those that are around you. BECAUSE IF YOU BELIEVE THAT YOUR LIFE AND your future is ultimately controlled by those that are around you then then you will be manipulating them consciously or not you'll be putting your hope and faith in them and when they disappoint you you'll be angry you will want to hit you know strike back because they didn't give you what you wanted or what you felt God wanted you to give give and you'll be just like in the world but with a spiritual veneer you'll be really thinking that human beings uh, will open the door or close the door and you become trapped into this human rat race, and you'll be just like the rest, but a veneer of Christianity like the Corinthians. But when you begin to act by the principles of love, whatever the situation demands, then you become a very different person, especially before God. This is why you need to have a prayer life to be able to deal with your life with the principles of love. We'll do a whole series on this one day, but I'm just setting out the fact that there's a more excellent way to live this week than perhaps the way that we're living it. That there are more excellent principles to put into practice in order to deal with, th- God's, with problems that actually mean something to God. We need a strong prayer life for this, and next week, I'm going to be speaking on a topic to undergird what I've laid out here today. And and that topic will be, take it to the Lord. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Take it to the Lord. Because I've discovered, and I don't always do this, but I have discovered, that the times when I take a difficult situation to the Lord, and cover it in prayer, and trust God, and have faith in God that He hears prayer, and pray, if I don't know what to pray, your will be done, your kingdom come, and I ho- hope that God will work things out in the end, out of that prayer closet, there's a freedom and a sense of less pressure to have to make it happen. Why? Because I've spoken to the Lord of glory in the, in the marketplace, in the, sorry, in the, in the secret place so that I can now enter the marketplace with the confidence is prayed over. I've dealt with my issues, I may have to deal deal with them again tonight, but I've dealt with my issues, my anger, my frustration, my jealousy, my fear, my envy, my fear that things won't work out, I've taken it to the Lord and I've gone to him and I've prayed and I've prayed and I've prayed and things have begun to change on the inside and I know that God has heard me, now I'm free as best as I'm able to put into practice the principles that I've been speaking about, the fruit of the Spirit, wisdom from above, the love passage, the Sermon on the Mount, I can do it. Why? Because I've dealt with it in prayer. Now I don't feel like I have to be a rat with the other rats in the rat race. Now I feel I can offer something to somebody out of the (laughs) presence of God that they couldn't offer by themselves. That, that there's something that's covered, there's something that ultimate, that, that even if it doesn't work out like I hoped, God heard, I did it the right way, and love never fails. Ultimately, love never fails. You can think you failed going the love way, but love never fails. Love will always win. It's a totally different way. I'm sure that you have done this at times and seasons in certain situations. You've gone the God way. You've prayed over it. You haven't struck back yet. You haven't been a rat with the other rats. But you've dignified the situation. You've you've been a Christian. You've been salty salt and shining light because you've done the right thing, though it hurt you, though it might not put you over, but though you might lose money on it, though you might be misunderstood. But you're living your life, not in the presence of others firstly, but in the presence of the Father. And you walk away and nobody knows it, but you here in your heart, the Father says, well done. Come on, my friend. This is what we are destined for. A better, more excellent way. Look, you're not going to wake up tomorrow and be the embodiment of love like that. This is a journey of learning and growing. This is a journey of seeking and praying. This is the situation you're in right now. You're not in that situation by accident. The the, the pinnacle of faith in the Sermon on the Mount is this, love your enemies. God. Do you have enough faith in God to cover a situation that frees you to bless your enemies? not many of us do, because you have to be free in God, free in prayer, to bless your enemies. God says, love your enemies, but we Christians, the problem with us, we don't love our enemies, we're too busy cutting them out of our lives, as toxic waste. You see it on Facebook all the time, just got rid of all the toxic people in my life, bless God, and God saying, I'm just going to have to put a whole bunch more in, so that you can learn love you great. I, I say this. I say this, uh, not 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 flippantly. Your, but it'll help you deal. Your greatest enemy can become your greatest friend. Not that you convert them, but what they're doing in you is teaching you. Now, I'm not now saying that if you're being beaten up at home, seriously, by your husband or your wife, then you you stay there. The problem with living the life of love is its principles. Every single one of us, as I close today, we are in unique circumstances and God is uniquely in those circumstances with us. So I I, I can't, you you need wisdom from God. You need your own prayer life as I need my own. Um, But the principles are the same, do you hear me? But you have to say, where am I? What situation am I in? How do I deal with these things? And you've got brothers and sisters that can help you in this. If, what, what characteristic of the fruit is God uh, developing in me? Because while we're think, expecting God to do all these things in our circumstances, God says, more important than your circumstances, I'm trying to do something in you. Remember, Corinthians, I could give you a gift in a moment. I could give you huge gifts. I could give you mountain-moving faith, the gift of wealth for charity. I could give you intellectual understanding and knowledge in an instant. I'm not interested in those things, God says. They're easy to give. What I'm interested in is where's your love? And so that means that the greatest work of the Holy Spirit today is in your heart and my heart. And there are principles in our circumstances that the Holy Spirit is working on right now. In some of us, it's patience. In some of us, it's a kindly attitude. Keep, keep that attitude sweet about that person. And you'll need a, that'll take hours of prayer to get into that place. That there's a generosity of heart, that there's a there's a lot a, 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 a patience that doesn't snap at people is different for all of us but if we don't know the principles we won't know what God's trying to do inside us we'll have an arrested spiritual development and we'll end up like the Corinthians but that's not going to happen to us let's bow our heads in prayer